So I want to start with a story um, that just came to mind thinking about Pentecost. Uh, my favorite class in seminary was taught by a professor. His name was Dr. Babawi. He was Egyptian, uh, a Copt. And so he was actually raised in the faith in the deserts of Egypt, which is such a strange and interesting experience. Um, as many of you know, Egypt is a majority Muslim country. Um, he uh, sort of was raised in many ways um, around that. And before he converted, his older brother had converted and actually became a preacher and uh, was killed by a mob of Muslims uh, in front of him. They speared his head to the ground. And I relate this story um, simply to, to highlight the danger of the story I intend to relate. And that is he, Dr. Babawi, found himself on um, a train traveling in Egypt. And often cops will tattoo on their wrists or on their hands a cross uh, so that they're visibly marked as a Christian. You can imagine that. Like, we're afraid to pray before a meal at Applebee's. And they're walking around with crosses on their hands wearing their faith on their sleeves in a country that, anyway. So he's in this train, and invisibly a Christian, and uh, the, the only that he could tell anyway in that train. And all of the sudden, someone shouts at him in the train. And I, you'll have to forgive me, this was, this was many years ago, so I'm going to paraphrase essentially what the person yelled. This, uh, this Muslim yelled at him, how do you know... You're following the true God. How would you answer that question if you were in his position? Especially knowing that if you make the wrong move or you say something offensive, you might be brought up on charges, legal charges. You might be killed by a mob. There's lots of things that could happen. Or maybe just put yourself in your own position, in your own family, in your own work, whatever, whatever you're going to find yourself, wherever you'll find yourself Monday, somebody asks you the question, how do you know you're following the one true God? How do you know you've got it figured out, you've got it right? How do you know? Dr. Babawi uh, testified that um, he felt as though it wasn't his answer, but it just kind of bubbled up out of him. All of a sudden, he spoke loudly and boldly in this train car, answering uh, his Muslim interlocutor, and he said, the Holy Spirit. And the train fell silent. And he moved on and got off and went about his day. I don't know if I would have thought of that answer. Would have thought of lots of uh, answers, apologetics, we might talk about scripture. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come bubbling up to my mind when somebody were to confront me about my faith. But the immediate answer of the Holy Spirit uh, wasn't, wasn't what I would have thought of, but maybe, maybe it should have been. This is, as we say, Pentecost Sunday, the Sunday in which we, we remember the giving of the Holy Spirit. So for those of you who, who need a little Bible timeline help, we have Passover week, which is the week on which Jesus is crucified. Uh, he is raised on the third day on that Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Forty days of teaching and preaching. We've been talking about this over the past 40 days ourselves in which Jesus is communicating the message of the kingdom of God to his disciples and then we have 50 days later Pentecost which is an intersection of two things the first thing is the Jewish holiday of the feast of first fruits so the early harvest the first harvest is brought into Jerusalem into Jerusalem, into the temple. You can imagine the great multitude that is gathered around Jerusalem. This, the the, the city is bustling with, with life and fresh 
grapes and fresh grain and fresh wine and fresh meat. It's the first fruits. Everyone's there to celebrate. And what could make that celebration more complete than the word of the prophets coming to fruition in that day, the giving of the Holy Spirit? The scriptures say this in Acts chapter 1, or chapter 2, sorry, 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, so all the believers are together. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and rested upon each one of them. They're full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. And if you really want to pull on the Old Testament piece, I love that God chooses to bring this on that season of first fruits because it reminds us that the coming of the Spirit is the coming of joy, is the coming of life, is the coming of rejuvenation and revitalization and newness upon the people of God. It pours out upon them and they then pour out into the world and everything's different. Everything's new. Everything shifts. And that's what we've gathered this morning in many ways to celebrate not just God the Father, not just God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit. Probably the piece that our church and our movement of churches tends to spend the least amount of time thinking about. So we need to get some Boring stuff out of the way. I guess I just, can I just be blunt like that? We just get boring. There's a word I like a lot, orthodoxy. It's a nice fancy word, makes me feel fancy when I say it, so I like to say it. Everybody's got to feel fancy now and then. Some of you all got shoes and necklaces and eyeshadow. That's all lady stuff. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, we're getting, we're getting far afield. What was I talking about? Orthodoxy. So we got to get some boring orthodoxy out of the way. Orthodoxy means right belief, which is to say that not everything somebody believes is biblically true. Just because they call themselves a preacher, just because they call themselves a church, there is a history, a lineage of truth that we have been given that is 4,000 plus years old and it's been handed down to us in the teaching and preaching of God's word. And one of those truths is that we have a Trinitarian religion. We believe in one God, one being, one essence, one creator, and that God has three personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you could use something like this to kind of get at it, kind of describe it. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Son, you have the Father. All of them, we use this word God to describe. All of them are God, but they are not each other. They are not the same. They are individual in their personhood. This is a grand and great and tremendous mystery, and it is something the scriptures give to us in all kinds of formulas. We baptize in our churches in the name of the Father. Some of y'all have been baptized. I like that. That's good, right? We get this, we get these things, and they're, and they're laid out before us as though they're the same being, even though they're clearly individual as well, right? And so we use a word trinity to describe a mystery. Remember that a mystery doesn't mean something that's unsolvable. A mystery is something you simply can't solve right this second. And none of you all can wrap your minds around God, pat yourself on the back, that's okay, you're not supposed to. Right? So if the Bible declares something mysterious about God and you're like, huh, I don't understand all that, I can't wrap my mind around it, that's all right. You're not supposed to. We have a Trinitarian God, though, a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today we celebrate the Holy Spirit. And this is what I want to do with us today. 
I want to, there are times where in a sermon you kind of get laser focused, and I give you one point, and I just harp on it for 20 minutes or until you get up and leave, right? This is a shotgun blast sermon. I'm going to throw as much at you as I can in the next 15 minutes, hoping that something sticks. And my hope is not that you're going to remember every detail that I'm going to give you. My hope is to overwhelm you. My hope is to overwhelm you with the almighty power, purpose, and privilege of being people who get to interact with God the Holy Spirit. That's my goal. You with me? Is that good? All right. All right, let's get going then. All right, here we go. The first is this. The Holy Spirit is the first and almost. The Bible didn't work the way I wanted it to, so I had to throw almost in there. Sometimes the Bible does that. If you read it, it doesn't always cooperate. So the Holy Spirit is definitely the first, um, but uh, almost the last. Revelation that we have from God. So when the Bible opens up, it opens up with this, this, introductory, this introductory point. In the beginning was the... No, that's John 1. That was the wrong verse. Doesn't open up like that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just kind of, or, in the, or when God began to create the heavens and the earth, literally in Hebrew it says that. It, what do we have first? We have first this. We have the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then all of a sudden, the revelation of God. And what is that revelation? The Spirit. The Spirit hovers. This word hovers actually only appears in Hebrew a few times. And it is something, uh, the closest thing, if you were to sort of literally translate it, it would be a bird that is stopped and hovering over something. Can all y'all remember a time when a bird stopped and hovered over something? Maybe a... No! In the Bible, Peggy. Guess I feel spicy today. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus was the answer. <laughs> the, the Spirit hovers over Jesus, right? So we have another instance of that. All right, so that's the beginning. Let's go to the end. The end. The Spirit and the bride say come. So if we go to the beginning, we're immediately introduced to the Holy Spirit. We go to the end throughout the book of Revelation. Of course, the Spirit appears all the time. But the last thing, that one of the last things we have, Jesus has one line after this. But aside from that, the Spirit and the bride, the kingdom of God that is, say come. And let all who hear say come. Right? And let all who want to dr- desire to drink from the water of life without price, let them come. Right? So the Spirit is the one who is there active in creation. And the Spirit is the one who is inviting us to new creation at the end. The Spirit is the beginning and the end of the revelation of God. The Spirit is what keeps us physically alive. You thought, I, this is sort of a new revelation. I was thinking about this. As I was reading through the scriptures, you have Genesis 2, 7, which talks about the creation of human beings. God takes the dust and he forms Adam, right, which literally just means ground. He, he forms it and then he steps down, I guess we might say, breathes life into him. This, this breath, this ruach, this is a word that means breath, it means wind, means life, means animating force. It breathes in, forms this living creature, this new man. But then as we fast forward just a few chapters later, we run into Genesis 6, in which we learn that these, these 
creatures that God has made in his own likeness and in his own image have rebelled against him. They continue to, to dwell upon evil and to practice evil. Their, their minds are on evil all the time. And so God laments that he's made them. He looks at them and he says, look, I gave you this beautiful world and all you're doing is corrupting it. And so God says, my spirit shall not abide. My spirit shall not abide in man forever For he is flesh, and his days shall be limited to 120 years. What does that mean? That means that the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, and it is keeping you alive, and God can shorten that life, which is to say that the Spirit of the living God is literally keeping all of us alive. We think of ourselves often as just human machines. This comes from the Enlightenment. We have this... this, we just, we just, we're born and we move. Like we're just human machines. There's nothing here other than biology. It's just moving along. And, and when we die, it's because our machinery, our heart, our brain, our, our, our lungs, whatever it is, just suddenly stops working. It's just, it's a thing that has been set in motion by our parents and we're just continuing on. But the scriptures declare something different. The scriptures declare that you are sustained by the living God. That his spirit is life that connects all of us together. In short, we need to move away from understanding our, our lives as just material. You are not just a body. You are not just an act that was set in motion sometime in the past, but you are being sustained by God that every breath you take, take one for a second. Go with me. Nice and deep. Nice and deep. Let it out. Right? That was a gift from God. The scriptures declare this over and over again, and we so frequently forget every breath, every move, every instance of our life, which is why Colossians tells us that it is in Jesus that all things are held together. How are they held together? They are held together by his powerful spirit. The Holy Spirit literally is what keeps us alive and moving today. This is theologically what we call common grace. God gives grace to the world, even if the world is in rebellion against him, and that is the Holy Spirit. But not just this. The Spirit saves us. John tells us that when the Spirit comes, he will guide us into truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but he he will speak what he hears from God, right? And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So in this, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, of course. There's a truth that is going to enlighten the disciples, but we are also leaning in and listening, and the Spirit is also the one that is going to speak truth to us. Jesus calls himself the gate, and Jesus is very much the gate through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He opens a door for us to enter into the kingdom of God, into God's presence. But who is it that leads us through the gate? Who is it that keeps us once we've entered into the fold? All of these things are tied to the Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you might remember this famous instance, Jesus is dealing with this teacher and he speaks to him and and as he's trying to communicate to him what he is all about, he says, listen, truly, truly, verily, verily, if you've got King James, right? I like verily better too. Orthodoxy, verily, two fancy words. Write them down. Take them home. Verily, verily, I say to you, unless flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And this is why the Pentecost sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 ends with this instance of after declaring the glory of Jesus and his saving power and what he came to do and all of those Jews standing around realize that they have actually crucified. We actually as human beings killed God who came to save us. 
And that was his plan all along, that he might bring about salvation for his own people, salvation for the people of God. And so the people are cut to the quick, and they beg Peter, like, what do we do with this information? You've told us now that we've killed Jesus, we killed the Messiah. What do we do in light of this Messiah who died and rose again and ascended to the Father? What do we do? And Peter says, repent, turn to God, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? That's, that's where all of that is headed. That baptism, that forgiveness of sins, all of that stuff is headed toward what? Headed toward a gift. And what is that gift? The Spirit. And yet we're so frequently not in tune with it, not in touch with it, not realizing, not even thinking about the power and access to God that we have via the Holy Spirit because of this day so many years ago. The Spirit is a part of the process that brings about the salvation of the believer, which is why Paul says in Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have salvation. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not connected to God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, nothing transformative has happened in you. And that is the work of the Spirit. Not just to save us in the sense of like setting us right so that we don't have to worry about hell when we die and we can look forward to heaven when we die, but rather to transform us so that we are the newness of life embodied. This morning, Brian did a wonderful job talking to us and giving us the symbols of the, the bread and the cup and how Jesus' body is broken and how his blood is poured out, but all of that creates a new covenant a new connection to God that, that sort of comes within us and then bubbles up and brings life. You remember Jesus says, I have living water. The person who is wise will ask me and I will give them water that never dies, right? that never fails, that never runs out. This is what happens. New life that is brought into us by the Spirit because the Spirit is critical in bringing about salvation for all believers. All right, deep breath. I need a deep breath for a second. All right, um, so we're running low on time. So I have made a quick list. This was all that I could get done Monday as I read through all of the passages on the Holy Spirit. So this is not an exhaustive list, you understand? This is just a placeholder. So get out your pens or your phones or whatever it is that you do to take notes. Here we go. All right. The Holy Spirit, other things the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit prays for us when we're so broken. We can't pray. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf and speaks with groanings too deep, too deep to be expressed. The Spirit prays for us or through us, depending on how you want to use that adjective. The Spirit moves us to action. We see this throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit will fall upon the prophets and they speak. The Spirit will fall upon the judges and they'll fight. The Spirit falls upon the church and they go forth in mission, bearing witness to the new life that they've received in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who leads us. He led them in the wilderness, we read in Nehemiah, and he leads us today, according to John Three, the Holy Spirit is actually the person of the Trinity that grows the church itself. The Spirit comforts us. Jesus, in fact, uses the word paraclete, which is a Greek word that means somebody who stands next to you and helps you out. How many of y'all could use that this week? God kind of standing right next to you, helping you out. Right? That's the work of the Spirit in your life. 
God wants that. Like, I don't know, maybe it helps you to visualize it this week as you're kind of walking. Things get tough. Think about the spirit next to you, holding your hand, guiding you, or putting Christian side hug, whatever makes you more comfortable. I don't know. The Spirit is the voice of God, the voice that rebukes the people of God when they are walking in sin, the voice that encourages the people of God to to have courage and to step up and go forward. The Spirit clothes us. We read this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It kind of covers us over so that we can begin to move forward in some particular purpose. The Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ, the mind of God. The Holy Spirit is the one... I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? That makes us holy? Like, that just seems easy. (laughs) That's a gimme. The Spirit is what makes us holy. The Spirit is what unifies God's people and brings them into one people. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Spirit that binds us together and creates life and helps us grow so that we as a church, as Christians individually, can be one. God unifies his people. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of his people. This is both a corporate dwelling when we've gathered together, the Spirit is present among us, and individually as you go off on your own, the Spirit is dwelling within you. The Holy Spirit, and this I think is probably maybe the most important piece right here, is the one who empowers Jesus. Like the reason Jesus had power to do all that Jesus did was because the Spirit was within and moving through him. The Spirit was the active power of God that Jesus used. Jesus left it to you, which means what? You have the access to the same power that Jesus had. What an incredible and amazing and unwarranted, in some ways, gift. Undeserved, certainly. God's power wants to renew us and use us just as God empowered and used Jesus so that people can see Jesus and you. That was a lot. Let's take another deep breath. All right. Lastly, the Spirit invites us to a new kind of life. It's worth noting again at the first point that I made that the Holy Spirit is the first personification, the first kind of image that we get of who God is and what, it, what he looks like. Before he even said, let there be light, we saw the Spirit. And the Spirit is the last in Revelation that's crying out to people to come to God. The Spirit is the one that is moving and active, this power of God. And this is not new to Jesus. It's not new to Peter. It's not new to Pentecost. All those verses that I gave you, most of them come from the Old Testament. A lot of them come from the Old Testament. The Spirit has always been moving and active. So much so that as Ezekiel puts it, something like that Paul talked about as well this morning, Ezekiel says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I hope you heard those words and am really caught on to that. The Old Testament continues through the prophets to foretell a time when God is going to bring newness to his people, fresh life to his people. Anybody ever feel that way? Like, you ever just feel like, I need some, like, like something fresh, something renewed. Like, everything feels stagnant and stale. You know what I'm talking about? The people of God had stagnated and gotten stale, and they had stopped following God's ways. It just kind of become a ritual, become something they just did out of obligation or out of habit. 
And even what they did wasn't very accurate in keeping God's ways. And so God, through the prophet, said, I'm going to bring about a time when I'm going to renew you and I'm going to give you revitalized power and energy. And that is going to be through the Holy Spirit. And so we are told, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, not to grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve the Spirit? Well, we grieve the Spirit by not walking with the Spirit, by not walking in the ways. Our eyes get fixated on, on work, or they get fixated on security, or they get fixated on our lusts or our sins. They get fixated in some way away from the thing they should be fixated on, Jesus Christ. And as we pull to the left or we pull to the right, we begin to walk in ways that are not in keeping with God's Spirit. And so the Bible says that when we as Christians do this, we actually grieve God. A.W. Tozer has a, has a great little illustration for this that really rocked me as I was listening to him. He said, imagine for a moment, even those of you who are young who maybe don't have kids, there's some teenagers over there and other people who don't have children, but imagine for a second you had a child and that child goes and gets into trouble with a friend you maybe have met once or twice. And you get a phone call from the police station, come on down, and as you go down and you meet with this police officer and you hear about the crime that your child and his friend were involved in, and you learn that this crime is so deep, so terrible, that they are all, both going to jail and there's nothing that's going to stop that. It's just going to happen. Now, how do you feel about the friend? I mean, you feel bad for them. You might give their parent a hug. You might weep together. You might be sad that this other person, this friend of your, of your son, is going away to jail. But how much more will you experience grief at your child going to jail? Right? Now, why do you experience grief in one instance and just kind of like, oh, that's too bad in another? Because you love. Love precedes grief. If we read in the scriptures that Christians can grieve the spirit, it means that God loves us so much that when we walk away from him, him in whatever way or fashion we walk away from him, the only word that the scriptures can use to quantify the experience, the emotional experience of God is grief. Think about that. God has emotions too. And his emotion, when we walk away from him, is grief. We grieve the Spirit. And so we're told, both in encouragement and discouragement, we're discouraged to walk away from the Spirit and we're encouraged to walk with the Spirit. But the message isn't because of hell or because of judgment. It's because God's great love compels us towards goodness and life. And every time we move in another direction, we grieve God because He loves us so much. He wants us to walk in goodness in life. And so he continues to reach out to you. He reaches out to you formally in things like this where you listen to a sermon. He reaches out to you in moments with maybe you're listening to music in the car or somebody says something or a Bible verse comes to mind or you just have this sense in you that something is amiss in your Christian walk. Listen to that voice. Listen to that voice. Listen to that voice. And follow the Spirit. And if you're not a Christian here today, I suspect that you, like every other person on the face of the planet, do believe in God. And let me explain why I say this. I say this because if it is true 
that there is no God and that there is no spirit and that we are all just human machines, then you are made for nothing, going to nothing, meaning nothing. You are nothing. And no one believes that. No one believes that. Because we're all searching for purpose. We're all searching for meaning. We all have this sense. There is not a person in this world who will not at one point or another stop and say, what's this all about? What's this all for? Why am I here? Where do these questions emerge from if all you are is a programmed machine who is born and will die? Where do those questions come from? They come from the Spirit of God who is calling out to you, whether you are walking with him or you are far from him, the Spirit of God reaches out to you right here, right now, in an intangible but movable and fixed sense that you have purpose, that you have meaning, that you belong to someone and to somewhere. And that someone is Jesus in the church. And that somewhere is the kingdom of God. And God is crying out to every single one of us today, listen to the voice of the Spirit. Follow the voice of the Spirit. Don't let the voice of the Spirit get squelched or quieted because you have plans this afternoon or because you have a busy week in front of you or because there's so much baggage in the past you couldn't possibly be forgiven or let it go. None of those things are worthy of what we're talking about today. What we are talking about today is a complete revitalization of every inch and every moment and every second of your life, so much so that the Spirit of the living God can't only produce something beautiful that is before you, but God can literally redeem the past that has broken you so that the things that have shattered you and brought you to tears and brought you down and wrecked you can actually be redeemed so that God can use it for his own glory and you can testify about the God who has fixed your brokenness. There is no wound that is so deep that God cannot heal it. There is no sin so deep that God cannot expunge it. There is no life that is so broken that God can't fill it and set it right again. And whether you are a Christian or whether you are not, listen to the voice of the Spirit. Because today, today the Spirit speaks to you Today, the Spirit speaks to you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. For the Spirit and the bride say, come. Come to the waters without price. Let's stand as we sing this song.